Dead Man Talking is brought to you by Vistaprint. I decided not to leave my holiday cards to the last minute this year, and so I went to Vistaprint to order custom cards, and it was so easy to make something that I know my friends and family will love to get. I found a great-looking card, uploaded a photo of my dog, Scruff, wearing a Santa hat, and added some text and clicked to check out. It's that simple. No matter where you'll be this holiday season, whether it's skiing the slopes, basking on beaches, or hunkering down at home with your loved ones, nothing says happy holidays like custom cards, calendars, and photo gifts from Vistaprint. When you open a card or a calendar and see your friends and family smiling back at you, or in my case, Scruff, my dog, it also feels like the person cares because they took the time to make it special. You can choose from square or rounded corners, folded or flat, and then select one of Vistaprint's great designs. You can put your favourite picture on most of them and even upload a great shot right from your phone. Figure out how many you need and order them up in plenty of time for the holidays. So get merry, get jolly, get 50% off all holiday cards and calendars, plus save on other photo gifts at vistaprint.com. Just enter promo code DMTHOLIDAY. That's vistaprint.com, promo code DMTHOLIDAY. And the offer's valid until January the 31st, 2019. So we've heard in the previous podcasts that Resendiz told me he killed Daryl Kolahako and four other people in an area that I'm pretty sure was Blythe, California. But at the moment, we just have his word for it. And sometimes I used to find myself with bloody pants or shoes. Yeah. And I couldn't recall exactly what I did. The thing but that's been bugging me all of these years shot, is, say, what you. if Resendez was lying? As you heard in the last episode, my gut tells me he wasn't, but I have to remain sceptical during the whole process. But why would he lie? What was in it for him? Is there any precedent for this? From DMT Media and Audio Boom. This is the Dead Man Talking Podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. I think I need to call up somebody who's an expert in serial murder in order to answer some of these questions. Hello? Jack, it's Alex. Hello? It's Alex. Can you hear me, Jack? Oh, wait a minute. All right. All right. Wait a minute. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. I've known Jack Levin for years. He's an emeritus professor in criminology at Northeastern University in Boston. I put on my headphones. That's great. Keep your headphones on, Jack. Okay. All right. He's written countless books on mass killing, and he's interviewed some killers like Charles Manson and the Hillside Strangler. Joining us now from Dedham, Massachusetts, is criminologist Jack Levin of Northeastern University. Today, I have the ultimate privilege of introducing you to Jack Levin. Let me bring in Jack Levin, who is a criminologist and an expert Two on... Two acts of right-wing extremist violence in just 11 days. Let's turn to Jack Levin at Northeastern University. First question, Dr. Levin, and that is, how is it that somebody actually 
carries this kind of thing out? What propels somebody to do this sort of thing? If there's one person who is the leading expert in serial killers in the US, it's Jack. How are you, Jack? Fine. So I started by telling him that when I met Resendiz, I didn't think this man looked physically capable of committing the horrendous crimes that he'd been convicted of. I found him very timid and almost respectful. Is this unusual? Would you have expected him to be intimidating? Most serial killers have two sides. They are respectful, polite, decent, civil to people when they interact in everyday life. Uh, When they're searching for their victims, they show their other side. Most serial killers have a small circle of friends and family who are off limits to their killing spree. And they treat those people with respect when they are on the hunt They're anything but respectful. I told Jack about my trip to Blythe, and he explained that Resendiz's modus operandi was not typical of serial killers. Most serial killers don't travel. They understand it's easier for them to maximize their skills in an area that they're familiar with, so they hardly ever leave a community. Resendez was very much unlike most other serial killers. In a sense, his venue was a boxcar. And they got a a breaker system here in in Dallas-Fort Worth area, where all the trains meet. If you want to go almost 20 places in in the United States, you can go from there real fast. The railroad defined his location. And again, that is very atypical of serial killers. One thing I wanted to look at was whether serial killers in the past had done the same thing, had lied about them, the number of murders they'd committed, almost as if they wanted to become the most prolific serial killer. Is there some kind of competition? And if so, was Resendiz part of this? Do you think, based on his profile, based on somebody who was killing for so long that he would more likely than not have been telling the truth about these others? There are many serial killers who are false confessors. Once they're on death row, they think that they can get possibly a reprieve, a stay of sentence, a new trial, by informing the police that they know where more bodies are buried. This often works for the serial killer. Just before his execution in Florida, serial killer Ted Bundy confesses to several murders here in Utah. It has come down to this, an emergency request to the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of execution in the case of Theodore Bundy has been rejected this evening. The vote was five to four. Bundy is scheduled to die in Florida's electric chair tomorrow morning at seven. Ted Bundy tried it at the 11th hour, but he was executed anyway. Authorities in Florida didn't believe him. That's not always the case. Serial killers are manipulative when they're luring their victims, and they're manipulative after they've been caught. Even on death row, they try to manipulate the system, that they'll lead the authorities to these bodies. 
they feel that they may actually avoid the death that is awaiting them. So that scenario would seem to fit Resendez then, or would it? Her husband picked me up yep. in Magnolias. Okay. They was to go to work. And uh, her uh, Diamantina and her boyfriend got put in, put in life in prison because of what I did. So one question I have there is, is there anything we know about him that could say whether he was telling the truth or not? Could he, in fact, tell the truth about one murder while he's on death row and lie about another? Could he have become infatuated with her, read about her case, and take the blame for a crime he had nothing to do with? Most serial killers will do anything possible to avoid apprehension. And then once they are caught, they don't want to spend the rest of their lives in a cage. They try desperately to get a stay of execution. And they may lie about crimes, crimes that they didn't commit, but they know might help them with law enforcement and the courts to postpone what is usually inevitable, and that is the execution. A Resendez was quite different in that respect. He actually wanted to die. He hated being on death row. He didn't want to be long-term in a cage. And by the way, he also had embarrassed himself with his family. And I think when you put all those things together, I think he was willing to lead the authorities to cases not so as to delay execution, but to hasten it. So was he a false confessor? It doesn't seem likely. It seems as though he was telling the truth. It doesn't surprise me, knowing that that's what Resendis wanted, that he would actually confess truthfully solving cold cases, cases that had been cold for many years. Wow, Jack, that's interesting. That's so interesting to hear you say this because I, I have a hunch about this and to hear you sort of articulate that is, is quite something. Here is a, an expert in serial killers who believes Resendez was telling the truth and this was the hunch that I'd had all along because Resendez did everything he could to speed up his execution. He said in the courtroom, execute me. He waived as many of the appeals as he actually could. To me, there was no reason why he would lie to journalists or to the police or to anyone else about additional murders. Quick word about one of our sponsors. What would it look like if we all listened more. Listening to audiobooks motivates us, inspires us, even brings us closer together. And there's no better place to listen than Audible. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and now, with Audible Originals, the selection has gotten even more custom with content made for members. I listened to Soul Survivor by Holly Dunn. You'll remember I spoke to Holly for episode one of Dead Man Talking. And in the book, she talks about surviving the attack by the railroad killer. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen at any time, even if you cancel your membership. 
Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash DMT or text DMT to 500-500. That's audible.com forward slash DMT or text DMT to 500-500. I doubt very much whether it was Sendez after he was apprehended actually did have pangs of guilt or remorse. I think he was just as manipulative in custody as he had been when he lured his victims. For him, manipulation was telling the truth, leading the authorities to cold cases that they might solve. He wanted his execution as soon as possible. And in his mind, that was the way to do it. He then told me something that echoed what Holly Dunn had told me in episode one. I do believe that he was trying to make himself bigger than he was. But I don't think that means we discount anything that he said. Most serial killers love the importance that they gain. We see their crimes as hideous, but they see these crimes as their greatest accomplishments in life. Being infamous, recording the largest body count in history, making the headlines, becoming big shot celebrities is what this is all about. This makes them feel really special. But how do you feel about um, execution and, and... Well, I think I fear God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about it. Uh, I don't fear no one else by God. Mm-hmm. Some people had taken me to the point of being killed. Mm-hmm. And I just say, well, I guess it's time for me to die. Mm-hmm. Do you think he would have been frustrated that he was executed without resolution for some of these other crimes that he was confessing to? I think the question is whether Resendez resented that he was not given credit for the crimes for which he confessed. I've interviewed serial killers who were false confessors. They may have killed lots of people, but that's not enough. They wanted desperately to have the largest body count in recorded history. So they would confess to murders that I knew they couldn't have committed because they were incarcerated at the time. So it is not out of the question that Resendez wanted very much to get the credit, as he saw it, for murders that were committed but remained unsolved around the country. Resendez told me in that interview, why would I take credit for something I haven't done? I have no reason to do that. Now, I shouldn't take what he said at face value, but his actions spoke louder than his words as well. He was doing everything he could to speed up his journey to the death chamber. Thanks very much, Jack. I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You may remember I interviewed Mark Babinek in episode two. He's the former Associated Press reporter who had interviewed Resendez on death row and looked into claims that he had killed Daryl Colahaco. 
Here's a bit of the tape that we didn't use in that episode. We'd just been talking about whether he felt Resendez was telling the truth. One thing I will say is that this would have been in an era not too distant from, uh, well, by several years, but it was still fairly fresh in authorities' minds of uh, another serial killer in Texas called Henry Lee Lucas. You'll recall that Henry Lee Lucas had come up when I was researching possible murders in Blythe. And, uh, well, I say he was a serial killer. He was an accused serial killer. Hundreds of murders were attached to him. And what really happened was he started just mass confessing to anything that authorities would put in front of him. Today, eight years after confessing to more than 300 murders, Lucas says he made it all up. Is Henry Lee Lucas the greatest serial killer of all time, or has he perpetrated the most extraordinary fraud in American legal history? There are murders out there running free because of Lucas. And it became a real convenient way for a lot of local yokels to clear their books. As it turns out, he probably didn't kill any of them. Maybe his mother. What was interesting was there was uh, one of his defense attorneys, a guy called Vic Fazell, ended up being responsible for publishing the Lucas Report. And the Lucas Report basically showed that it was impossible for Lucas to have killed some of the people he said he did because he was either in jail at the time or the other end of the country. So we know that Lucas had lied about the vast majority of these homicides. So I think uh, the pendulum kind of swung on that and you had um, authorities particularly reticent. They were very careful even on Resendiz uh, when possible links came up to really try to vet it because they didn't want to go down that rabbit hole again. That said, in this particular case, they already had people in jail. So um, they had already convinced a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that these other folks had committed the crimes. And I think the authorities were right to be cautious of what Resendez said. They didn't want egg on their faces again like they had when Henry Lee Lucas lied about all these additional murders he said he committed. The last thing they wanted to do was try and pin all these murders on Resendez because, you know, Resendez was confessing to them. But Resendez wasn't confessing to thousands, even hundreds of murders. He was just confessing to a few. And I think that those confessions should have been taken seriously. If we assume for a moment that Resendez was telling the truth, isn't it odd that he was so vague about some of the detail? Surely if you'd killed four people in California, you'd remember the specifics. One of the things that always intrigued me about the Resendez interview was this bit in the tape where he talks about the moment of murder where everything he said went grey-blue. Grey-blue. Grey-blue, yeah, you said everything went grey-blue. Yeah. The whole world, yeah. Yeah, and the whole world may have come back and may not have come back. And I just didn't put no attention because sometimes this uh, trip to McDonald's was a better thing than recalling what you did yeah. the night before. Right. Yeah. So you can never recall what you did the night before, really? Not, not all the time, no. but sometimes... Yeah. I'd never heard of something like this happening, but I've always wondered whether this sensation could somehow explain a lapse in memory. Hey, Charles. Yeah. Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah. How are you? Good. I'm on my way down. I think I know where you are. You're on over at the. Uh, my name is Chuck Weaver. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience and the department chair here at Baylor University. I wanted to talk to Chuck because. He's one of the leading experts in false memory in the U.S. 
and I, I sort of missed. I did the story, but mislaid the um, the audio tapes and like. like I thought he could help me get to the bottom of whether Resendez is misremembering these crimes, whether he may not have committed them at all and has just imagined it, or whether there's some sort of lapse in memory, whether he did it but he just can't remember the specifics. He claimed everything went grey blue at the moment of murder. What does the psychological literature say about this? Is he talking about blacking out? And does this explain the discrepancy over the number of people he killed? Maybe. One of the things those of us who study forensic psych do is become skeptical. When I hear people describe an event, especially a violent event, where they say it went black or it went gray or at that point everything just kind of faded out, I think one of two things. One is I think they're shading the truth. They're simply not being forthcoming. The second, in in lots of domestic violence situations where people say, then everything went blue-gray, we're talking about some kind of substance abuse. They were drunk and they passed out or they were high and that may have affected their memory. The kind of prototypical, at that point, the world became blue-gray and the evil part of me came out and I killed. It certainly could happen, but I tend to be pretty skeptical about those. But I cannot really uh, uh, say that, that I know how many there were, mm. but there were three or four in, in the border. Three or four between Arizona and California. Yeah. I'd read that memory could be affected by stress-induced elevation of cortisol in the brain. And I wanted to find out from Chuck whether that could explain why Resendez can't remember the specifics of his crimes. Was he actually stressed when he committed those murders? It could be. The relationship between stress and memory isn't a linear function. It looks like an upside-down U. So people talk about stress as being bad for memory. A little bit of stress is a really good thing. Stressful events tend to be more important. We tend to focus our attention. We tend to remember them. At some point, the stress gets so high that it begins to narrow our focus. Our attention gets directed to just a handful of things. We'll probably continue to remember those core facts, but we'll do so at the expense of remembering the trivial details around it. The reason I don't, I don't blame myself yeah. is because I don't have the evidence in my mind. Okay. If I, if I can remember, like this case, I don't remember everything. Right. But I have enough to blame myself because... So I wanted to know, is it possible to murder four people and simply forget how many people you killed? Oh, certainly. If you've killed, and, and I think his number is maybe as high as 30, depending on which source you listen to. If you think of things that you may have done 30 times in your lives, 30 trips to a certain gas station or whatever, for the average person, if you kill someone, you're going to remember the details about it. If you've done it 30 times, it's certainly possible for people to confuse, to confabulate, to get events mixed up. So he may be misremembering one set of killings and attributing them in another location. To those of us who study memory, that wouldn't be surprising at all. Interesting. I'd never thought of that before, but it makes perfect sense. So essentially what Chuck is saying is that if you do something, the same thing enough, go to the same place enough, the specifics of those visits are going to blur into one another. So for example, just this afternoon, I went and filled up with petrol in my vehicle. Even though I go to that same gas station all the time, the specifics of that trip, I'm never going to remember that in a couple of weeks' time. All the trips that I make to that same gas station are going to blur into one. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by The New Yorker, an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. I've subscribed to The New Yorker for years and I buy it primarily for its long-form writing, which is unmatched. If you've never read David Gran or Catherine Schultz before, it's worth getting a subscription just for them. But beyond publishing the best writers in the world, it also holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. So to get the best writing anywhere, everywhere, I get home delivery of the print edition each week and the digital version of the magazine is available on my iPad. You can also get it on your iPhone, Nook and Kindle. So don't wait. Go to newyorker.com forward slash DMT. Listeners to Dead Man Talking save 50% when they enter code DMT. And with this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6 plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo of both print and digital subscriptions. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com forward slash DMT. What about this idea of false memory? The idea that somebody can remember doing something, but that just didn't happen at all? Turns out to be shockingly easy to get people to misremember things, to remember things that never happened, sometimes really important things that never happened. That's how memory works. Memory's reconstructive. Resendiz, if you recall, believed he was an avenging angel from God who was cleansing the world of pro-abortionists and gay people. And he was motivated by this kind of religious uh, identity that he'd given himself. And I wondered if beliefs like these could have any correlation with memory. In other words, was he just seeing things that he wanted to see? Absolutely. It's what we call confirmation bias. And we all do that. We tend to attribute relatively benign comments one way or another, depending upon our political beliefs. We tend to interpret things consistent with our beliefs. If you're looking at an, an ambiguous situation and you believe that the person sitting across from you is performing witchcraft, then when they reach into their pocket and do something secretively, you're going to interpret that differently. So that, that's certainly possible. But it wouldn't surprise me if he used those delusions to kind of reshape what he remembers about an event. Also the, the men and the women that were very much into witchcraft. Mm. Okay. Short of some kind of external corroboration, it's impossible to know whether what he describes, even with tremendous detail, would be accurate. There's no way to look on the face of what he says. Well, look at all the detail he's got there. That couldn't have been fabricated. Well, it could be one of any one of a number of things. One, it, it could be an outright lie. It could be a calculated lie designed to keep him from death. I think more likely what it is is a blending of information that he's remembering from some other killings things that he's read about or heard about or been interrogated about becomes very easy for people like this to realize what's important to the interrogator. And so you begin teasing them. You begin playing with them. When, you, when they give you details, you say, that's right, how did you know that there was a backpack there? And then over time, you lose the ability to remember what was the detail I added and what do I genuinely remember? So I think it's certainly possible that what he's saying he genuinely believed happened. And it may be accurate. We'll probably never know unless we find the bodies. So certainly in the case of Daryl Kolahako, the idea that he'd misremembered stuff and that could be thinking of other crimes 
doesn't apply if what Mark Babinek says is true. Babinek is saying that when he went to the crime scene, it all appeared as Resendiz had described it. And what was interesting, what's fascinating, is none of that was reported in the papers. In my mind, there is no other way that Resendiz could have found out those specifics other than if he was actually there. Where these two places meet, if you, if you go in and, and on Highway 10... I also yeah. told Chuck about yeah. my trip to Blythe. It sounds like the details that he provided might be the kind of details that are specific enough for people to go out and then look for some kind of physical evidence. On the other hand, it also sounds like the location is sufficiently remote that if there were any remains, they may not be there anymore. So the absence of evidence isn't the same thing as proof that he didn't do it. It's just that we can't confirm that he did it or not. What's more likely, that Resendez was telling the truth when he said he killed more people, or that he was lying? I, I'm going to do the, the safe answer and say it's probably a little bit of both. I suspect that he did not kill as many people as, as he claimed. I suspect that he's killed more than has been attributed to him. Is it logical to assume that he probably did kill more than they know he did, but maybe not that many. I think that's probably the safest bet. I do think there are probably some crimes to which he confessed that he didn't do. But I, I think there are probably others that he did do that, you know, he's killing people kind of out of the mainstream in places that are off the beaten path that are likely never to be found. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that he may have killed more. Whether it's two more or 40 more, I don't think anybody has any idea. One of the things that I think people underestimate with respect to people who have been imprisoned for crimes like this is how boring their life is otherwise. And spending time in a courtroom, spending time with a reporter is, is really a whole lot more interesting than spending time in your eight-by-eight eight cell. And he found a way to, to draw attention to himself. A lot of the folks like this have a deep narcissistic component and they like all of the attention being put on them. And he certainly got it. Even if you accept that Resendez is accepting media requests to do interviews, to get out of his cell, to get out of his box for an hour, two things can be true. He can be doing it because he's bored, but he can also be telling the truth when he speaks to people like me in those interviews. Thank you so much, Chuck. I, you I bet. Appreciate, appreciate that. Happy to do it. That's all for this episode. So far, we've looked at the murder of Daryl Colahaco and a series of murders that could have happened in Blythe, California. Next time on the Dead Man Talking podcast, is a man about to be executed by the state of Texas for a crime that Resendiz could have committed? Wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe to us and give us a five-star review if you like what we're doing. It really means a lot. We actually topped the podcast charts in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and we'd love more people to hear about us in other countries and hear what we're doing.
Dead Man Talking is presented by me, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Connor Tolony is our researcher and production assistant. And thanks, as always, to the band Goodnight Texas for our theme song. You can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas and their new album, Conductor, is available now. Don't forget, we always post court documents, pictures and other developments on our own Facebook group. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash deadmantalking. Email us at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com and tweet us at deadmanpodcast.